In Mexico City, Arena Mexico hosts a spectacle that is popular throughout the country. Lucha Libre. Mexican masked wrestling is popular for entertainment where participants or luchadors wear a cartoonish costume and perform staged wrestling. The luchadors put up a show filled with comedy, drama, action, and more. One of these luchadors went by the stage name La Dama del Silencio or the Lady of Silence. A woman with a tall stature and a masculine build. She wears her trademark pink and silver striped bodysuit paired with knee-high silver boots and her butterfly mask. She earned a world championship belt fighting legendary wrestlers such as Latin Lover, Charlie Manson, La Parca and Sacred Mask Jr. The Lady of Silence took her job very seriously, but a woman who was a single mother of four hid behind the butterfly mask. She did whatever she could to provide for her family, and Lucha Libre was a source of income which paid very well. She had many fans and won most of her matches. Unfortunately, La Dama del Silencio received an injury which forced her to retire. Desperate for income for her family, she would take odd jobs while still promoting Lucha Libre matches. A series of murders involving 42 to 48 victims spanned a period of 8 years in Mexico City, all targeting women over the age of 60 who lived alone. Authorities initially believed the only thing tying these murders together was media sensationalism. Even though each murder had consistent causes of death, lack of forced entry, and robberies that went along with the murders. However, when authorities finally acknowledged the pattern, the police believed the suspect to be a man in women's clothing and launched a massive search for cross-dressing prostitutes in the city. Many didn't realize the real murderer was a luchador named Juana Barraza. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found at tamsinleecrimsonsin.podbean.com or you can find it in the description. Between 1998 and 2003, Mexico City was plagued with a string of murders involving elderly women. A mysterious figure was known as the Old Lady Killer for being responsible for these murders. The case involving these murders led nowhere for years as investigators could never find a connection to the victims and the perpetrator. Authorities also had a hard time finding a motive other than robbery. So, who was the elusive figure attacking grandmothers? And I'm sorry if I am mispronouncing these names. I was never good at pronouncing Spanish words, so please forgive me. Juana Barraza lived a life filled with abuse, neglect, heartache, and tragedy. Juana de Anara Barraza Semperio 
was born north of Mexico City in Epazoyocan on December 27, 1957. Her mother, Yusta Semperio, was an alcoholic sex worker who was very young when she gave birth to Juana. Her biological father, Trinidad Barraza, was described as a drunk womanizer who allegedly fathered over 30 children throughout the years. Yusta and Trinidad met when she was only 13 years old and he was 18. Seeing that she did not come from much of a home, she was very poor, he offered to take Yusta in. He would take odd jobs and eventually would become a police officer. They lived together for four years, having two children in that time. First came Angela and then Juana. When Juana was only a couple months old, Yusta left Trinidad for a married man named Refugio Semperio, leaving Angela with family and bringing Juana with her. See, this situation doesn't sound that strange, considering nowadays you hear something like this happening a lot, right? But this situation with Yusta and Refugio was very unusual. Because Refugio was initially involved with Yusta's mother before turning his attention to his stepdaughter. However, he raised Juana as if she were his own child and she would also take his last name. Yusta would go on to have two children with Refugio. Trinidad was not involved in Juana's life at all and she barely even knew him. Yusta would then become an alcoholic who had no empathy for her daughter or her other two children. There was always a barrage of strange men coming in and out of the house for her mother. Juana hardly spoke to her mother. Even as a toddler, just never communicated with her mother. They lived in poverty and she was forbidden to play outside. Refugio prevented Juana from receiving an education because he felt it was a waste of time for girls to go to school when they would only become housewives. Due to Juana never receiving formal education, she was illiterate, only able to read and write her name. Juana's early years would prove to be pretty rough. Unfortunately, things would only get worse. When she was 13, her mother sold her to a 40-year-old named Jose Lugo in exchange for three beers. Just something so incredibly, like, that is just insane to think that a mother would sell her child for three beers. I mean, I saw some accounts say that it was a case of beers, but even for a case of beer, that is just, that, that is ridiculous. Over the course of the next four years, Lugo would repeatedly rape Juana. She fell pregnant when she was 13 and again at 16, but she lost both of those babies. She became pregnant again by Lugo at 18, 
having her first child, a son named Jose Enrique. Eventually, Juana would have four children, all of whom fathered by different men. A few months after Jose was born, Juana was rescued from Lugo. There are conflicting stories on who actually saved her. It was either her stepfather, Refugio, or it was his brothers. But either way, whoever saved her went to Lugo's house and refused to leave without Juana. Not long after her rescue, Juana's mother died from liver cirrhosis. Needless to say, Juana didn't feel anything when her mother died, as she never held any love for Eusta. Which, why would she? She never provided any empathy, any care toward Juana. So it would only be right that she wouldn't have been affected by her mother's death, right? Instead, Juana held great resentment toward the woman who made her endure years of abuse and trauma in Lugo's home. After Eusta's death, Juana took her son and moved to Mexico City. After moving to Mexico City, Juana found herself in two serious relationships. However, both men were violent drunks who beat her. After leaving both men, she tried to live on her own before she met a man named Miguel Angel Barrios Garcia. Her future had finally looked promising. At 23 years old, they married and had a daughter named Erica Erandi Barrios Barraza. But the couple wouldn't last, separating four years later. She tried raising her two children the best she could on her own. For a while, Juana would work in a chocolate factory before becoming a street vendor. She would also go on to sell clothes. But later she gave up on this because one day she made a mistake and her boss slapped her. Instead, she took on some cleaning jobs in order to provide for her family. At the age of 30, Juana was devastated by her stepfather's death. In her life, she felt that he was the only one she could ever depend on. But after this tragedy, Juana found love again that very same year, meeting a man named Felix Juarez Ramirez. The couple would go on to live together for more than 10 years and have two children together, Jose Marvin and Emma Yvonne Juarez Barraza. During this time, life was good for Juana, but it appears that this happiness wasn't meant to last either. At 42 years old, Juana left Felix. At 42 years old, Juana left Felix. Deciding she was done with men and just dead set on giving her children the home she never had, she focused all of her love and energy on her children. She was a single, illiterate mother of four, ranging in age from 6 to 21. She wanted nothing more than to provide a calm and stable environment for her kids and just be the exact opposite of what her mother was. However, her life was always difficult and this proved even more true when tragedy struck her life yet again when her eldest son, Jose Enrique, 
died after a physical altercation while he was being mugged. At 24 years old, Jose died after being beaten with a baseball bat. Her second child, Erica, married young and left home, but she still lived near her mother. They maintained a good relationship. And in the 1990s, Juana still had her two youngest children with her. By 1998, murders of elderly people in Mexico City were on the rise. The public fearing that a serial killer was on the loose with tabloids reporting these deaths. However, authorities would try to assure the crimes were unrelated, chalking it up to media sensationalism. Juana lived in the neighborhood where the killer struck, but she wasn't worried about the killings as the targets were over 60 years old. She was only like 40-something at this point. Juana had other problems she was dealing with as she was struggling to make ends meet. Her eldest son died and he helped greatly financially. And after his death, she still had two young children to take care of. And she only had jobs that did not pay very well. So she found herself struggling. She was working as a vendor and taking odd jobs, but again, this did not give her a lot of money. In a desperate situation, Juana resorted to committing petty crimes. First, she began shoplifting. Then, she moved on to robbing stores that were closed. This then led to her robbing homes. She would then go on to sell the stolen items on the street. In 1996, a friend of Juana's named Araceli Tapia Martinez would act as her accomplice in these schemes and together they came up with this idea to target elderly women who lived alone. To gain their victims trust and gain access to their homes, they would dress as nurses. While inside, one of them would keep the woman company as the other would rummage the house. By the time the senior women realized what had happened, Juana and Martinez were long gone. This scheme worked very well for a while. Unfortunately, Martinez had her own plan. She was friends with a corrupt police officer named Moises Flores Dominguez. Together, Martinez and Flores came up with their own scheme to betray Juana. After a robbery that Juana committed alone, Flores waited for her outside the home, as he knew she would be there. He demanded that she give him 12,000 pesos, or he would arrest her. She needed to get the money to pay him off. Flores kept a very close watch on Juana from then on, so she couldn't resort to robbing homes. As she was a single mother with very little money, it would take her a very long time to pay him off. While the pay wasn't great, she accepted a job selling snacks at Mexico Arena. The job provided Juana with a pleasant environment filled with fun and entertainment. Mexico Arena hosted the city's Lucha Libre matches. 
Juana Barraza was enamored by the spectacle of the Lucha Libre matches and more than enjoyed watching every match as it played out. One day, as she was selling popcorn, a Lucha Libre promoter spotted her, suggesting that she try out. As she was five foot nine with an athletic, muscular build, Juana appeared to be an ideal candidate. As shocking as this was for her, it was an opportunity of a lifetime, and she decided to pour everything into it. She even took up weight training twice a week. As a luchador, she earned 300 to 500 pesos per fight. So for the first time in her life, she was finally making a good living. She was finally making some good money. But just as Juana became one of the most popular luchadors in town, she suffered an injury to her spine. The doctor told her if she didn't quit fighting, she could become paralyzed. She was forced into retirement. But along with this devastating news, she knew the money would stop coming in. However, she decided to stay as involved with Lucha Libre as much as possible by arranging events for smaller towns as a promoter and she would always be seen ringside during the matches. In 2002, there were so many different reports detailing brutal slayings of elderly women on the front pages of newspapers. Many of the assailants had been captured, all the result of theft or confrontation. But one case that stood out occurred in November. A retired woman named Maria de la Luz Gonzalez Anaya was found strangled inside her home. There was no sign of forced entry and nothing was taken from Maria's home, leaving police scratching their heads. Forensic evidence showed that the killer had suffocated the victim only using their hands. The next couple of years saw these murders increase, ranging from months to weeks apart. Some would even occur within days of each other. Citizens of Mexico City grew angry that someone was targeting elderly women. By March 2003, a string of murders troubled the city with the homes being robbed. The murderer managed to access the safes at numerous houses. Authorities found documents littered the floor but it didn't look like anything of great value was taken from the homes. February 10th, 2004, a 75-year-old woman named Alicia Gonzalez Castillo welcomed the murderer in her home. Alicia put her dog outside so it would not bother her visitor. She was later reported missing and authorities conducted a welfare check at her home. Her body was found lying on the bed in her bedroom. Alicia had been strangled. Between March 2003 and March 2004, nine women all over the age of 70 years old were murdered, with the murderers going as far back as 1998. 
But authorities still did not want to admit that they were dealing with a serial killer. Without the help of forensic coroners, the serial killer may not have been caught. Or I should say that the authorities may not have been able to discern the connection between the death of the victims. Because these coroners noticed an increase in elderly women coming in, having been beaten and strangled. All ranging from months to just mere weeks from each other. They pressured police to admit to the public that there was a serial killer on the loose. But authorities were not so forthcoming at first. Eventually, they released the statement telling the public about the connection of the string of murders. These cases are very difficult for authorities to figure out without forensic evidence or eyewitness accounts because there is literally no connection between the culprit and the victim. The circumstances in which these acts are committed are no more than fortuitous. But investigators ran into some issues when they needed to collect forensic evidence from the crime scenes. As the families of the victims had cleaned the area, so all evidence was basically lost. This completely irked police because they needed that evidence to catch the killer. But they understood that the family was grieving, they were mourning, so it was just a frustrating situation for them. Authorities in Mexico did not have a lot of experience pertaining to serial killers. They started studying serial killer cases from other countries, which seen the likes of, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Richard Ramirez, and more importantly, the monster of Montmartre, which was a similar case in France. The perpetrator in France, Thierry Pauline, committed at least 21 murders, but was convicted of killing 11 elderly women, always utilizing the same method. He would follow the victims to their homes, torturing them until they told him where they kept their savings. And then he would strangle them to death. Mexican authorities had Inspector Felipe Dussault from France come out to train local investigators on the case they were currently working on since they already had certain techniques for investigating serial killers and they already had that experience of figuring out who did it and capturing Thierry Pauline. Investigators were able to create a profile of the supposed culprit based on the descriptions provided by witnesses they described a tall person who was roughly between 45 to 48 years old with broad shoulders, big hands. They stated the physical features of the individual was big and strong with short hair and was dressed as a nurse. One of the perpetrator's strategies was to pretend to be someone who was helping, working through the public policy program, through the welfare program to help the elderly. Based off of this description, detectives were tasked with locating nurses and healthcare workers. But even with the witnesses' help in profiling the suspect, authorities still received mixed descriptions. No two witnesses would describe the person that they saw the same way. With unrest growing in locals, officials were pressured to find the culprit. 
On January 9th, 2004, a nurse named Mathilde Sanchez Gallegos was detained and interrogated for over 10 hours. She was described as a good colleague who everyone liked. That day, a local newspaper ran a sketch of the old lady killer and a couple of beat cops who were flipping through it noticed a person at a nearby bank with the same physical features of the composite sketch. It was claimed that when she noticed the officers, she had started to act suspiciously, so authorities decided to detain her. The media started reporting that authorities had found the old lady killer, but Matilda's colleagues were not convinced. However, one colleague looked at the composite sketch again, only to find that it did resemble Matilda. From the sketch, Matilda's co-workers knew that authorities were going to use her as a scapegoat and send her to prison. Her colleagues would protest as a way to pressure authorities to release her. Investigators felt that it was unbelievable they had been so lucky. But the features in the sketch fully matched. They put her in a room with a one-way mirror to be identified by witnesses of some of the cases. But none of them recognized her. Fifteen hours later, investigators could not charge her with anything and had to let her go. They had some fingerprints, compared them to Matilda's, and they didn't match. So authorities were forced to apologize. The FBI explained to local authorities that the serial killer worked in stages. The first is the selection stage, where the culprit observes and stalks their potential victim. So the perpetrator in this case would watch their potential victim and made sure that the person was alone. Next would come the seduction stage, which is a very important stage that would allow access to the victim's home. This was no easy task because no one allows strangers into their home. Especially not when there's a serial killer on the loose or that there's just been a bunch of murders happening. No one's just going to let a stranger into their home. So this led investigators to believe that the perpetrator displayed an ability to interact with seniors. Once the suspect determined the victim to be their next, they moved on to the execution phase. Every victim was strangled in similar ways in all cases authorities encountered using a headscarf or one of the items found in the elderly's home. It could be the cord of a curtain rod, a robe sash, or a cable of an answering machine. After committing the murder, the culprit would take something from the victim as a souvenir or as a trophy. Outrage continued to grow throughout the country. Many citizens believed that authorities weren't doing anything to solve who was committing these murders. Authorities were telling the elderly to be cautious of everyone, do not go out alone, and do not let anyone you do not know into your home. In March 2004, police finally caught a break. A 40-year-old woman named Araceli Vasquez Garcia was arrested and convicted of the slaying of 81-year-old Gloria Enedina Rizzo Ramirez. Garcia was said to have posed as a social worker, meeting Ramirez in the park. 
Authorities surmised that once Garcia was in Ramirez's home, Garcia robbed and killed her. A fingerprint found at the crime scene linked Garcia to Ramirez's murder and the murder of 75-year-old Maria Margarita Quezada. Both victims had their jewelry and cash stolen before they were strangled to death. Garcia admitted to robbing both women, however she vehemently denied killing them. But the judge did not believe her, sentencing her to 23 years in prison. Authorities believed they had finally caught their culprit. Unfortunately, after Garcia's arrest, the attacks on the elderly still continued. Investigators already believed that the culprit was dressing themselves as a nurse to conduct health checks. But they also theorized that once inside the home, the victims were asked for their official papers, generally meaning that the elderly women had to unlock their safes. Almost immediately after the safe was open, the victim was strangled with anything that was available. The items, of course, I stated earlier, would have ranged from, you know, telephone cords, electric cords, curtain cord, and even the stethoscope, which was part of the killer's costume. The culprit then took small trinkets from around the home, but rarely took jewelry. The items of choice appeared to be souvenirs or trophies for the perpetrator rather than things of any monetary value. Eventually, the serial killer decided to change their M.O. up a bit. While the victims were still strangled with their houses rummaged, the way the bodies were discovered took a more backhanded nature. As in the case of 84-year-old Maria Virginia Tizepan, on July 3, 2004, Maria was found slumped over at the dining room table. She had been strangled. In a mocking manner, one of her porcelain dolls had been placed across from her, facing Maria's body. At the end of August, another 84-year-old victim was found in her home, strangled with a belt. The culprit handled the elderly woman with so much force that her dentures fell out of her mouth and were found laying on the floor next to her. A sculpture of the Virgin Mary was placed on the table facing the victim's body with votive candles lit in the room, making the scene appear more as a funeral instead of a murder. On September 12, 2004, authorities arrested and charged a street vendor named Mario Tablas with the murders of three elderly women. They had actually been searching for him since 1998. Tablas was dubbed the nurse by media because he would dress up as a female nurse and wore a blonde wig. In his possession, investigators found a notebook with names and addresses of potential victims. But if this item wasn't creepy enough, on the cover was a drawing of a faceless nurse with the phrase, God gave me the authority to exterminate, written on it. But even with this second arrest, the murders still continued. Investigators determined all the attacks occurred 
during the daytime to victims who were lower middle class retirees and who lived alone and often resided near public parks or gardens. Authorities also found that the perpetrator used the same kind of knot when strangling their victims, which was a very basic knot. This led them to believe that the culprit was not very sophisticated. They were also able to obtain fingerprints from the crime scenes, however they could not find a match in existing police records. In 2005, the media coined the killer El Matavijitas, the little old lady killer. Police released another profile of their perpetrator, stating that the person was between 40 and 50 years old, approximately 5 foot 7, stating that he did not have a permanent job, and if he did manage to find employment, it was not a well-paying one. They also stated that the person used public transportation and did not live in Mexico City. Chief Prosecutor of Mexico City, Bernardo Batiste stated that the killer had a brilliant mind and that he was quite clever and careful. He further stated that the killer was a psychopath who felt no remorse. Authorities started to feel the pressure even more when the body of 82-year-old Carmen Camila Gonzalez Miguel was found on September 28, 2005. She was the mother of a prominent criminologist named Luis Rafael Moreno Gonzalez. As she was in a higher class than previous victims, authorities feared the perpetrator decided to move into Mexico City's wealthier neighborhoods. Only two days later, there was another murder. 85-year-old Guadalupe Oliver Contreras was seen walking home with a muscular woman wearing a pink blouse. Most witnesses believed the person to be a man dressed as a woman. Authorities began handing out these pamphlets and telling them to not allow strangers into their homes. Undercover cops would also patrol the streets searching for any signs of the old lady killer. Authorities thought their perpetrator could be a transgender person, and by November 2005, police established that their suspect was a man who disguised himself in female clothing. The running theory was if he dressed like a woman, it would put elderly people at ease, which would then allow him access to their homes. Police further urged elderly people not to allow these strangers in their homes. After establishing this, a woman went to the media claiming that agents had actually paid her between 100 and 200 pesos to use her as bait. Head of inquiry Renato Sales denied that officers placed elderly people in shopping malls as bait, which Still, it put a lot of heat on authorities. What also brought more heat on for authorities was when they decided to arrest roughly 40 transgender sex workers who were fingerprinted, and it turned out that none of the fingerprints would match any of the prints found at various crime scenes. So this caused a 
lot more anger to brew amongst Mexico City's citizens. On October 18th, 92-year-old Maria de los Angeles Hernandez was found severely beaten and strangled with her own scarf. The suspect even left the front door wide open. If all the previous cases up to this point were committed by the same person, this would be the 31st killing in two and a half years. During the holidays, there appeared to be this pause in the slayings. Authorities speculated that the murderer must have been spending time with their family during the Christmas holidays. Investigators didn't waste this time as they decided to start checking the fingerprints of all the bodies in the morgue. However, the killer would soon strike again. On January 25th, 2006, a resident came home to find that his 82-year-old landlady had been strangled with a stethoscope. He then witnessed a woman fleeing from the scene, and he chased after her. Luckily, there were police officers patrolling nearby. They managed to capture the woman just as she was about to go into the subway station. The suspect was Juana Barraza. Authorities searched her, finding pension forms and a card which identified her as a social worker. The tenant identified Juana as the woman he witnessed fleeing his landlady's home. While under arrest, authorities were just baffled by Juana's cavalier attitude. The only emotion she raised was concern for her daughter, who was at school, and she even requested that she make arrangements for a friend to go pick her up, which officers agreed to this request, but still, they were shocked that she was not more worried about herself. Authorities then took her fingerprints, which matched the ones found at the landlady's home, as well as at least 10 other murders. Investigators searched Juana's home, where they found a room filled with trophies. The room contained newspaper clippings about the murders, items that had been taken from the victims' homes, and an altar that honored two saints, Jesus Malverde, which this is one that is highly honored and revered by drug traffickers, and they also found Santa Muerte, which is a patron saint of criminals. Investigators also found a white coat from the Mexican Social Security Institute, a pair of white shoes, and a stethoscope. Everyone was in shock that the serial killer was a woman, and it is speculated that this is why she had gotten away with it for so long. Everyone just knew that the brutality of this case had to have been committed by a man. Juana Barraza was confronted with a list of murders and denied any involvement. She claimed she never acted as a social worker, stating on the day she was caught, she offered to do domestic work like cleaning and doing laundry. 
However, when authorities asked about the social worker's coat at home, she couldn't give an explanation as to why it was in her home. She also claimed that she never had any official documents on her when she was arrested and that the arresting officers had planted it on her. Which it is worth noting that Juana could not read or write. We've already established this, that she was illiterate. So it would be very difficult for her to forge an official government identification card for herself. It is speculated that she could have had an accomplice. To further this theory that she had an accomplice, Juana told authorities that in mid-2005, she was involved with Jose Herrera. He would drive her to her victim's homes and they would split everything that she stole. As soon as news broke that the old lady killer had been caught, Herrera mysteriously fled. Authorities captured him a few days later. Juana Barraza alleged all the old lady murders were committed by multiple people over the years. She just could not understand why authorities were only after her. She stated she didn't do it. She just denied any responsibility for the murders. She warned authorities that the murders would not stop after her arrest, but they did. What was the reasoning behind Juana killing elderly women? The main theory was that she associated these women with her mother, and she took her revenge out on them. Juana Barraza is suspected of murdering 42 to 48 people. Chillingly, she shows no remorse, killed for the thrill of it, to punish her mother, and just flat out claimed that she hated older women. In the spring of 2008, Juana Barraza's trial started. She was accused of 30 murders. She would only admit to committing one murder, which was the one, you know, she was caught fleeing from. She further claimed she never admitted to killing three people that she killed because of her resentment towards her own mother. And Juana's defense team tried their best to declare her insane, to get her off with an insanity plea. But a psychological evaluation determined that she was of sound mind and she knew exactly what she was doing. Court proceedings in Mexico are different than in the U.S., as there isn't a jury, there is only one judge, and a criminal case is presented by a prosecution and a defense. So the only spectator is the judge. By the time Juana even appeared before a judge, she was already seen as guilty in the eyes of the public. After her arrest, police held a press conference where they made her stand next to a bust which they had created during their investigation based on information given by 15 witnesses. Authorities dressed the bust and Juana in red sweaters to show everyone the similarities between the two. She was even photographed reenacting the murder of the landlady, which was all released to the media. 
So to say that this was kind of unfair is an understatement. But again, you know, it's the first time that Mexico really dealt with a serial killer case, so they were kind of parading her around, right? So I guess you could say they were kind of parading her around because they caught her, but I think they kind of did this the wrong way, announcing it. I mean, yeah, let everyone know that you more than believe you caught the person you believe to, to have committed these crimes, but you don't parade them around on media like on the media like that. I mean, that's that seems kind of reckless. So on May 31st, 2008, Juana was found guilty of 16 murders, as well as aggravated burglary and 11 additional counts of murder. While in court, she stated, I killed one little old lady, not the others. But when she was asked about her motive, she merely told people, I got angry. That's it. To her, that is the only acceptable reason why she committed murder was because she became angry. Juana was given a 759-year prison sentence, which is the longest punishment to ever be given in Mexican history. Her case has been considered one of the most evil in Mexican history as well, which says a lot considering all of the different crimes and you know the cartel so to her to be considered the most evil person in mexico is kind of mind-blowing <laughs> what do you think of today's case let me know your thoughts and requests in the comments also don't forget to follow and subscribe for more true crime stories like this Thank you for listening, stay safe, and I will see you for the next episode. Bye!